Well, let me begin this morning by talking to our children. You have probably gotten used to me calling our children little theologians. I have spent uh, a week with our uh, children in music camp and um, and more convinced than ever, uh, our children are theologians. Little human beings are always theologians. We're always asking questions about who God is and wondering who we are. Right from the womb, we're doing that. So little theologians, uh, very uh, glad to have you uh, with us this morning. Would you draw for me uh, over the course of this sermon, either yourself walking or sleeping or eating? Pick one. Walking or sleeping or eating. This passage is meant for our ordinary life. There's walking and eating and sleeping in this passage. Our passage is Proverbs chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. We'll finish out this morning uh, the entire uh, chapter. So Proverbs 4.10 is where we will begin. Again, welcome to Covenant this morning. Uh, Before we uh, read and uh, hear God's word preached, would you join me in prayer? Our Father, you're speaking to us. Would you quiet our hearts? Would you give us attentiveness to your word? And would we leave from this place, empowered by your Spirit, to live according to your word? Thank you for speaking to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Proverbs chapter 4, and let's begin at verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son... Be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is the word of our Lord. I hope you've gathered over these past few chapters that Proverbs is meant for a contemplation as you go about your life. I, I don't mind confessing to you that I'm feeling my sermon preparation method shift uh, just a little bit to account for the kind of literature 
in which we find ourselves. Uh, Proverbs are really meant for uh, taking in, reading, and uh, memorizing as best you can and letting them jostle around in your head and in your heart, especially as you go about ordinary life. What I'm discovering in my sermon prep, spending time with Proverbs, is that that's what I'm doing. I'm reading and I'm rereading and rereading. That part is normal. And I'm holding it in my head and heart as best as I can. That part is normal. But what's happening with Proverbs is that uh, the Proverbs really begin to make sense to me as I am engaging in ordinary life. Uh, working in the yard all day seems to be uh, a great opportunity for Proverbs to sink in. Uh, driving downtown, sitting, uh, sitting in my car uh, with Proverbs bouncing around in my head and my heart seems like a great uh, opportunity to learn what this father is saying to his son. Proverbs are meant for ordinary life. And that's what we see in this passage. We look at these various images in uh, 4, 10 through 27. We're stacking these images. We're trying to contemplate what the author uh, means. We're hearing uh, references to uh, walking and to, well, and running and to eating and to sleeping. These are very ordinary things, but they're so ordinary. Why is the dad bringing it up? Why is the dad bringing it up? Two times he addresses his son, son. And so there's a conversation here about stuff that ought to be beneath conversation. It ought not make it to the radar. It's just boring stuff. But yet it's a part of the conversation the dad has with his son. We ought to ask why. That's what Proverbs is about, equipping us to go about ordinary life. God actually cares for your ordinary life. Sometimes I wonder if that uh, notion that we have to do uh, great and grand and enormous things for God, sometimes I wonder if that notion uh, comes from the very heart of Satan. God cares about the ordinary things in our lives. This, this is what loving relationships are like, aren't they? He cares about your boring life. And he cares about my boring life. This passage is telling us, and we've seen this in Proverbs, what this passage is telling us is that uh, our relationship with God touches even the ordinary. I know we've heard that uh, a few times over the course of Proverbs, but it's here again in this passage. A relationship with God touches even ordinary Christian life. The father says to his son, uh, speaking in, I think, uh, three uh, larger images. First is this imagery of a father's faithful parenting, verses 10 through 12, a father's faithful parenting. And then next, the father seems to explore uh, what it looks like to have life that is opposed to the father, uh, 13 through 19, uh, the life opposed to the father. Strange that he would entertain that, but that's the imagery. And then thirdly, uh, the father says to his son what it is like to live the ordinary life with the father. Verses 20 through 27, uh, living an ordinary life with the father. But first, uh, 10 and 12, a father's uh, faithful parenting. Look at how the father parents. In just a few verses, he says he, he parents by giving his son words, verse 10. He parents by leading his son. I have led you in verse 11. And uh, he parents by uh, making uh, promises. You see in verse 12, when you walk, 
You will not be hampered. You will not stumble. Just think about that for a moment. This is faithful parenting. The father has a body of teaching, and so he's speaking instruction to his child. And it's not distant because he's actually walking with his child. Take to heart verse 11. I have led you. How close and personal that is. Then he makes various promises about what that child's life will be like. A life in which they're not hampered or stumble. We're going to talk about stumbling later. And with each of these, uh, these uh, uh, cues of faithful parenting of the father, uh, with each of them requires a kind of a commitment from the son. Do you, do you see that here as well? It's not just a matter of the father speaking words in verse 10, but the son he has to hear. Not only that, he has to accept. There's a relationship The father speaks words, but the son must accept them. Looking at verse 11 again, uh, the father has led his son, but what is he implying? The son must follow his father. In verse 12, uh, the father is promising to the son that he won't stumble, but what what does that require of the son? That the son would trust his dad. This really is the setting of wisdom, isn't it? A loving relationship in which one cares for another and the other accepts and follows and trusts that care. Speaking and leading and promising, that's a good dad. But the son is to be accepting of his father's words, following his father's leadership and trusting the promises of his father. Just that bit there ought to tell you that Proverbs is not simply a rule book, a code of ethics. You carry it about in your back pocket and it'll tell you what to do in given situations. No, Proverbs is about benefiting from a divine relationship with a Father who loves and cares for us. I mean, is this not the very setting of Jesus' life with His disciples? Always teaching them, isn't He? always explaining to them the Old Testament, but actually explaining to them the very mind of God, explaining God's will and the unfolding of God's plan for redemption. And for the disciples, we know that they heard a lot and accepting didn't come easy. It was hard to accept all of the teaching of Jesus, but He's always teaching words of instruction. And He's always leading them, isn't He? Jesus is is holding them close to His side as He leads them into homes and into cities and into synagogues, into even dangerous places, places they didn't want to venture, uh, Samaria and places inhabited by Gentiles, across the sea in calm weather and in dangerous weather. He's leading them. It wasn't always easy for the disciples to follow him, was it? And Jesus, he's always promising to his disciples. He's promising his own resurrection. And not only his own resurrection, but the resurrection to come, the resurrection they'll one day experience themselves. He's promising life with him forever, even though their life will be filled with persecution. 
wasn't always easy to believe the promises of Jesus. Hard to accept, hard to follow, and hard to trust. And yet Jesus is faithful, speaking and leading and promising. This is life with this father. Good parenting of the earthly father, uh, King Solomon uh, to his son, but a foretaste of the perfect father and how he cares for us. And then in verses 13 through 19, the life opposed to the father. What would that kind of life look like? He says that it is uh, following a path of the wicked, a way of the evil, a way of the wicked. Three times at least he's describing what life opposed to the Father would be like. And he's describing a way or a path walking along the ground. I think it's important for us to notice here in verses 13 through 19 that Jesus, he's not simply speaking about a behavior He's actually speaking about a way of life, a kind of existence. That's why the Father uses this imagery of just walking. He's describing a manner of life, a way of life. We find those phrases in the New Testament. A pattern of life in 2 Timothy. What is the Father about to talk about? He's going to talk about the way of the wicked as the pattern of life for the wicked. We might use uh, the terminology today of your core beliefs or your purpose in life or your mission in life or your passion in life or all of your dreams. Don't Christians and non-Christians both use this terminology? We read books about having a life mission and purpose. We think about and talk about living life from our core values and beliefs. And that's what the Father is talking about. He's saying that path of wickedness is a path that has a bad core values, bad passion, bad dreams. In fact, we use today the, the terminology of identity, don't we? Isn't that interesting how Satan has slipped that into our vocabulary that identity should be the most important thing of all and if it's the most important thing of all we ought to have power to change it and mold it and morph it into whatever we want. How tricky Satan is. But here the Father is talking about that manner of life for those who oppose the Father. Well, you, you know that, that he doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, uh, abridge himself in verse 15. He has an opinion, the Father does, about this manner of life. He says, avoid it, verse 15. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. The Father knows that the Son has a relationship with the Father, but the Father also knows that this Son can have a tendency to mute that relationship and live as if He has no relationship to Him at all. Christian, you feel that, don't you? If someone were to take a snapshot of your life, your behavior, if someone were to hear every word that's come from your mouth, if someone could get somehow a schematic or a blueprint of your every thought, you know that on some days they might think you were something other than a follower of the Father. 
And King Solomon knows that about his son. He says, I know that you are saved, but I know that sometimes you'll act according to a manner of life that's not yours. You'll act as if you are avoiding me. There's something very important in 13 through 19 to notice. I've said this to you uh, repeatedly. Uh, In one sense, Christianity is a rather arrogant religion. You see, Christianity claims to know not just what the religious life is like, but also what the irreligious life is like. Christianity has something to say to the believer, telling the believer who he or she is. But Christianity also has something to say to those who hate Jesus, refuse to follow him, believe he doesn't exist, never existed, nor does God exist. Well, keep this in mind. Christianity knows you better than you know yourself. Christianity knows the irreligious life. And as we look at this uh, center of the passage, we, we hear the Father talking about sleeping and eating and walking, all from the perspective of the irreligious life, someone who opposes the Father. Now keep this in mind. Uh, the Father is not likely speaking from experience. That is, the Father has lived and tested the wicked life. Uh, we can't read that from Proverbs. We certainly can in Ecclesiastes. But the Father, with divine wisdom, uh, God speaking to him by the Holy Spirit, the Father knows what sleeping and eating and walking are like on the wicked path, those who oppose God. He says in verse 16, talking about their sleep, the wicked sleep uneasily, don't they? They have done wrong to, uh, to someone, made someone to stumble, and they need to do that more and more or they're never going to sleep well. And as they go to sleep, they wonder to themselves if they have uh, done enough harm. Did I do enough? What do you think the sleep of verse 16 is about? I think it's about always wondering if you did enough to raise yourself above your fellow man or fellow woman. That's the sleep of verse 16. Did I do enough always insecure. Someone's going to take something from you. Someone's going to make you stumble. Did you cause them to stumble first? That is uneasy sleep. What do you think eating is like when you're opposed to the Father? Verse 17, the Father says they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. You know, in ancient culture, the table is devoted to your best self. The table is where hospitality happens, where rejoicing, where friendships are secured. The table is about your your best self, but not in verse 17. That table, everyone gives each other permission to be your worst self. To talk about the world in a way that shows you're wicked and evil. It's where sin is talked about. It's where sin is relished. And it's where all of this is done publicly at the table. It's delighting in evil, having permission to talk about it even around the table. 
They're sleeping and they're eating and their walking is even different, isn't it? In verse 19, life for them is deep darkness. And I'm not sure that we should understand this as uh, the kind of negativity that they understand. To walk in deep darkness is to learn about life from experience. It's walking through life and memorizing where the furniture is. You don't need the light. You just memorize. And so you plan You concoct your route. You know better than the next guy where the furniture or the Lego piece is in the dark. And you protect yourself, but not them. Walking in the darkness becomes a form of art for those who are opposed to the Father. They think they're better at it than others. But still, think about how much this good and loving Father knows about the manner of wickedness. He seems to know it well. You know, wisdom, as it comes from God, enables us to consider exactly what life with the Father is like, but also what life without the Father is like. That offense of Christianity for the Christian is actually an enormous blessing. The Christian can see down that path. If you've been to a major European city and you walk and there's this big circle with a monument in the center of the circle and the main path took you there, but there's nine or ten other streets that go off into various neighborhoods in the city, I wonder where they go. If you're not a believer, you might explore those cities to see what they're like. But God tells us what those wicked paths are like. He tells us We know in advance, this is the path that I should be on. This is a great blessing of Christianity. But even this is a foretaste of Jesus. He is the Father's instruction in flesh. He is our life. Whoever has the Son has life. Do you see that in verse 13? I think that's what King Solomon is saying to his son. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Verse 13 is such a rare expression in Scripture. He must be quoting Moses. Moses says something similar. He preaches to them and he says, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that you may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Deuteronomy 32. Who's he talking about? A life that comes from walking with Jesus. These words are life to those who find them, King Solomon says. Christianity tells us about that wicked way, the life opposed to the Father. But he actually, this father, finishes this section by telling his son how to live the ordinary life with the Father, not in opposition to him. I want to finish with just four uh, applications. I think that verses 20 through 27, living an ordinary life with the Father, I think it's immensely practical. But when you hear me say this, you might hear moralism or legalism. It's not that. The Father has established a relationship with His Son. 
brought his son close to him, given him words of instruction, walked with him, and made sure promises to him. And the father gives this advice to his son. This is how you live your ordinary life with me. And follow this with me. There's four of them. He says in verses 20 through 22, How, son, are you to live the ordinary life? He says, study your father. You see there in verses 20 and 21, My son, be attentive to my words. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. Study your father. This is the first application. We are so very quick, aren't we, to study our hobbies or our interests. So very quick to get lost in our work, lost in our home life. And again, this isn't a guilt trip. But if we have a relationship with the one true God and He desires that we would know Him more and more and more, all good relationships are like this. How especially so for a relationship with the one true God. He desires that we would study Him. Desire to know everything about Him. You hear in verse 20 that the Father says that he, uh, or that he, the Son is to incline His ear. How are you with that being a mission of your life? Every day, inclining your ear. Why your ear, not your lips? Because the Father, He speaks to you every day, every minute, every second. Study your Father. He wants to be studied. How remarkable that God would give to us a word. How remarkable that God would give to us a Christian fellowship where we might hear His word from the lips of others. Incline your ear, Christian. You're never alone. And there's nothing as sweet as devoting all of your time and your study to learning more about your Father. Pay attention to hobbies getting the best of you. Study your Father, verses 20 through 22. Uh, The second is guard your heart, verse uh, 23. Uh, Keep your heart with all vigilance. That word for vigilance we've not seen in Proverbs. It refers to uh, keeping your heart in custody, uh, almost putting your heart in a cage, This is really difficult. How do I guard my heart? I think what the Father means is that uh, we are to understand the preciousness of a heart that has been converted and that we are to keep the door of that heart locked. Isn't that a silly image? I think that's what the Father is saying. To be vigilant is to guard a prisoner. How strange. God has placed your heart in a cage. Certainly the majority of these expressions in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, are about God himself guarding our heart. This is what a saved heart is. It is precious to God, protected by God, and it is your job to not leave the door open. He saved that heart. Now, heart is the controlling influence of your thoughts and your speech and your actions and your loves. Don't leave the gate open. I wonder if an application might be this. Doubt your guarding of your heart. 
Are you too anxious or too worried? Are you getting lost in anger? Are you letting your plans become sovereign plans? You may not be guarding your heart. It's precious. It's more important than to be squandered on anxiety and worry and human-centered plans. Don't allow these things to get the best of you. Guard your heart. Verse 24 is simple. Control your mouth. Put away from you crooked speech. Don't tell lies. And put devious talk far from you. That word for devious only shows up here in the Old Testament. It may refer to wood that is wet or green, and so it's bendy. Not only are you not to tell lies, but you're not to have warped speech. Speech that is displeasing to God because you are toying with wicked thoughts. Speech that is filled with sexual double entendres. You, you think I'm seeing an application here that may not be here, but wait till next week. Sex is going to come to the forefront in the next section of Proverbs. And this could be a reference to speech that is inappropriate. It's sexual and objectifying, warped speech. Don't lie and don't allow your speech to be warped. And then finally, verses 25 through 27, calibrate your path. If you're a son of the father, the father says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze straight before you. Verse 25. Verse 26, ponder your path. Probably should be a better read. Make your path. Flatten your path. Calibrate your life in such a way that what you believe and how you behave, they're lined up. Keep your eyes straight away. And I think this is, uh, this is uh, best pictured with that word swerve. Don't swerve. Feel the one or two degrees early on because further in your life, those two degrees could take you far from your father's path. God cares about our ordinary life. And our relationship with God is supposed to touch even ordinary things. Study your Father, guard your heart, control your mouth, calibrate your path. And let me just conclude with this. God has sent His Son to die for us. He loves us and desires us with an uninterrupted affection. But our affection is constantly interrupted. If I could summarize this passage, that our relationship with God is supposed to touch even ordinary life, I would tell you two things. Never grow bored with God. Never think that God is uninterested in your life unless you make it worth His interest. Never grow bored in your life with God. That walk is the most precious walk ever. Never get bored in your life with God. And then finally, this. Ask yourself, if you are bored in your relationship with God, why am I bored? It's not a good sign. Never grow bored in your life with God and ask yourself, why am I bored with my relationship with God? Those questions, I think, set us up to understand God's care about our ordinary life. Our relationship with God is supposed to be touched in every way because God loves us.
Well, he cares about our ordinary life, and that relationship with God is supposed to touch even our ordinary life. Let's uh, join together in prayer. Our Father, uh, would you help us to remember these things, that you care about our ordinary life? And our Father, would you help us to see that our ordinary life is supposed to be marked by you? Would you forgive us for being bored in our life with you, and would you forgive us for being bored in our relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen.